You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Chuck Palahniuk. This program originally aired in 2011. This archive audio is clipped at the beginning. We apologize. I keep expecting to wake up from this beautiful dream. I mean, back before I was married, I had this one girlfriend who was fat. We were both of us fat together, so we got along. That girlfriend... She was always testing us on new diets to lose weight, like eating nothing except pineapple and vinegar, or nothing but green algae from an envelope. And she was suggesting that we take these long walks together until she started to shed the pounds. Her hips just melted away, and you never saw anybody so happy. Even then, I knew that something would wreck it. You know the feeling when you love somebody. You're happy to see her happy. But I knew my girlfriend was going to dump me because now guys with careers and and health insurance, they were getting her on their radar. I remember that she was pretty and funny before, but now that she was getting so skinny, it was obvious that she possessed vast, untapped reserves of self-control and self-discipline way out of my league. And my friends weren't any help because they were all circling, waiting, waiting for us to call it quits so they could date her. And then it turned out it wasn't the pineapple or the self-discipline, because she found out that she really had cancer. But she slimmed down to wearing a bitchin' hot size (laughs) 2. Just before she died. That's how I know that happiness is like a ticking bomb. And how I met my wife is because I wasn't going to date anybody, not anymore, no way. So I was taking the Amtrak to Seattle. I should have said uh, Portsmouth. (laughs) It was the year of Lollapalooza in Portsmouth. (laughs) And I'd packed my tent and wrapped my sleeping bag to protect my bong so I could camp out all weekend like a Grizzly Adams. And I walked into the bar car on the train. You know how sometimes you just need to leave the friends and the sobriety behind for a few days? I walked into the bar car, and there's this total stone-cold fox pair of green eyes looking right directly at me. I'm not a monster. I'm not some reality show blimp stuck in a hospital bed eating buckets of fried chicken all day. But I can understand why guys would want to work as guards in in women's prisons or or maybe concentration camps, where you could just date good-looking prisoners (laughs) without those babes always saying, put a shirt on, and asking, do you always have to sweat so much? But on the train, Here's this goddess wearing a Radiohead t-shirt cut off to show her bare middle, and she's wearing Mickey Mouse and Holly Hobby rings around every finger, holding a beer to her beautiful lips, and looking at me down the length of the brown bottle, just an ordinary MGD, not some pussy microbrew in a green bottle. (laughs) Guys like me, guys like me, we know the score. Unless you're John Belushi or John Candy, No hottie is going to put you in that kind of an eye lock. So right away, 
I know enough to look away from her in shame. The only reason why a girl like her would talk to me is to break the news that I'm a gross fat pig and I'm blocking her entire view of the ocean. <laughs> know your limits, I always say. Aim low and you won't be disappointed. Edging past her, I look without looking. I check her out, and she smells good like some kind of dessert, like a baked pie, like a pumpkin pie with that red-brown spices on top. Better yet, the beer bottle in her mouth turns to follow me as I walk down the aisle to the bar and order around, and it's not as if we're the last boy and girl in the whole world. A bunch of other people are drinking at the plastic tables, going to Lollapalooza from the look of their dreads and tie-dye. I walk all the way to the most faraway table from her, but this hottie watches me go all the way. You know the feeling when somebody's watching. You can't take one step without stumbling, especially on a moving around train. I go to take a drink as the train turns a corner, and I spill beer down my striped cowboy shirt. I'm pretending to watch the trees going by outside the window, but from a secret agent angle. I'm watching her reflection in the glass, and she's still watching me. The only time she looks away is when she steps up to the bar and gives the bartender some money, and he gives her another beer, and then her reflection is getting bigger and bigger until it's life-sized, and she's standing next to my table, and she says, hi, and something else. <laughs> and I say, what? And she points at my cowboy shirt, at the beer spilled there, and she says, I like your buttons. Shiny. <laughs> I tuck my chin and look down at the pearl-colored snaps. They're not buttons, they're snaps. <laughs> But I don't want to scotch this moment. And right from the get-go, I notice that she puts her fingers in her mouth sometimes. Okay, she puts her fingers in her mouth a lot. And she uses a breathy little girl voice with some baby talk words like buschetti instead of spaghetti <laughs> and skizzers in place of scissors. But for a regulation hottie, that is just textbook being sexy. <laughs> she gives me a wink and licks the tip of her tongue around her lips. And with the wet still shining on them, she says, I'm Britney Spears. She is such a tease. Sure, she's a little loaded, impaired. But by now, we're both drinking these little bottles of tequila, and it's not as if we're driving this train. No, she's not Britney Spears, but she is the same caliber of hot. It's clear that she's pulling my pud, but in a good way. And you just need to look at her to know all you need to know. She's such a flirt with her green eyes cutting from side to side or peeking up at me from under her long fluttering eyelashes. And she must be beers and beers ahead of me because she keeps forgetting to end her sentences. And sometimes she points at something speeding by outside the window and she shouts, a dog! <laughs> or one time, 
One time she sees a car waiting at a rail crossing and Brit screams, slug bug, and clobbers my shoulder with her fist full of Hello Kitty and Mickey Mouse rings. And secretly I hope that I have that bruise for the rest of my life. And we go to Lollapalooza and we pitch my tent. And Brit is so drunk that when she wakes up the next morning, she is still drunk. And no matter how much doobie I smoke, I'm having trouble keeping up. And maybe it's because Brit is so skinny, but she seems to cop a buzz without drinking for hours, like maybe she's getting a contact high from my secondhand smoke. And our whole Lollapalooza is like that kind of beautiful classic romance that you would pay to jerk off to on the internet. But it's happening to me. And we're dating for six months, all the way through Christmas, through Brit moving her stuff into my apartment. And I keep expecting Brit to wake up sober one morning. And she still hasn't. We go to eat Thanksgiving at my mom's place, and I have to explain. It's not that Brit is a finicky eater. But the reason why she's so skinny is she only likes to eat a zucchini squash cut in half lengthwise and hollowed down the middle to make a miniature Iroquois dugout canoe <laughs> with knife scratches on the outside to look like Indian writing <laughs> and a whole tribe of little braves carved out of raw carrot but with green peas for their heads lined up and rowing the war canoe across a dinner plate covered with a thick layer of chocolate syrup. <laughs> and you'd be surprised how many restaurants don't have that particular item. <laughs> Not on their regular menus. So most times, Brit has to make it herself, and that takes half a day. And then she has to play with it on the living room carpet for an hour. And that's why she never gains an ounce. You're listening to Chuck Palahniuk from Writers on a New England Stage. He is known for provoking and to some disturbing novels like Fight Club and Choke. Right now he's reading a story called Romance that contains adult content that may not be suitable for some listeners. And my mom, my mom's just stoked to see me dating again. And the only buzzkill is how every Romeo comes to sniff a circle around her trying to grab her in an eye lock, giving her tits his best Pepsodent toothpaste smile. And this one time, riding on a bus, a pack of these Romeos stand themselves around where Britt and I are sitting in the back of the bus. Britt likes to sit on the aisle right over the back wheels so she can see to punch me first when there's a Volkswagen. <laughs> and this one big Romeo comes to stand with his crotch situated at her eye level and when the bus hits a pothole, maybe his hip brushes against her shoulder until Britt looks up at him and talking around her fingers in her mouth, Brittany says, hello, big boy. And maybe because she's trying to make me jealous, Britt says to this Romeo, her smoke and hot green eyes look at him and she asks, do you want to see a magic trick? And all the other Romeos perk up with looks that prove that they're all listening. And Brittany takes her fingers out of her mouth and she slides them down inside the front of her pants. 
and the back half of our bus gets so quiet, and you can see these Romeos swallow their Adam apples going up and down with all their extra spit. And as fast as clobbering a slug bug, Brittany yanks something out of her pants and she yells, magic trick! And about 200 passengers get off at the 7-Eleven, <laughs> pushing and stampeding off the bus like they all need to buy Slurpees. <laughs> and I'm yelling after them, it's okay, everybody. I'm yelling out the bus window, waving to get their attention. She's a performance artist. <laughs> I'm yelling, she doesn't mean anything by it. It's, it's just some political gender politics statement <laughs> deal. Even as the bus pulls away with just the two of us left on board, I'm yelling, she's just a free spirit. <laughs> and one night, one night I come home from work and Brit's naked and she's standing sideways to the bathroom mirror, holding her belly in both hands. And since we met on the train, she's gained a little weight, but it's nothing that a couple weeks of pineapple and vinegar won't fix. And Brittany takes my hand, and she holds my fingers spread against her belly, and she says, feel, she says, I think I ate a baby. And she looks at me like a puppy dog with her green, haughty eyes. And I ask if she wants me to go with her to the clinic and take care of it. And she nods her head, yes. So we go on my day off, and there's the usual Sunday school teachers blocking the sidewalk. They hold a garbage bag full of nothing but broken apart plastic baby doll arms and heads mixed together with ketchup. And Britt doesn't hesitate. She reaches into their bag and she takes out a leg and she licks it clean like a french fry. And that's how cool my beautiful girlfriend is. And I open a National Geographic magazine while the nurse asks her if she's eaten anything today. And Britt says she ate a whole canoe full of Iroquois warriors the day before. But no, she hasn't eaten anything today. And I haven't finished reading this one article about ancient Egyptian mummies before there's a scream and Brittany comes running out of the back still wearing a paper dress and bare feet. Like this is a big deal. Like maybe she's never had an abortion before. Because she runs barefoot all the way back to my apartment. And to make her stop shaking and throwing up, I have to ask her to marry me. And it's obvious that my friends are insanely jealous because they throw us this bachelor party. And when Brittany goes to the ladies' room all bummed out because the chef won't carve her a war canoe, my so-called friends, they all look at me and they say, dude, she is the total most hot best thing ever. But we don't think she's stoned. My best friends, they say, you didn't marry her yet, did you? 
And their faces don't say that Brit being knocked up is good news. And you know the feeling. You want your best friends and your fiancé to mesh, but my friends, they grit their teeth together and they look at me with their eyebrows worried tight together in the middle and they say, dude, did it ever cross your mind that maybe, just maybe, Brittany is mentally retarded? <laughs> and I tell him to relax. She's just an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm pretty certain she's a heroin junkie too. That, and she is a sexual compulsive. But it's nothing so bad that some talk therapy won't fix her. I say, look at me, look at me. I'm fat. Nobody's perfect. It's so obvious they're only bad-mouthing Brittany because they are actually totally Romeo insanely jealous. The minute I looked the other way, they would be so up in her business. Brit, they insist. Brit has the intellect of a six-year-old. They think they're doing me a favor when they tell me, dude, she can't love you because she just doesn't have the capacity. Like the only way somebody would ever marry me is if she had irreparable brain damage. And I tell him, she can't be retarded for crying out loud because she wears a pink thong. And it's like I told my mom's boyfriend at Thanksgiving, no, Brittany is not a high-functioning anything. My best guess is she's an alcoholic, glue-sniffing, dope-shooting slut. <laughs> but we're working on getting her into treatment after she has the babies. And maybe she is a nymphomaniac, but what's important here is she is my nymphomaniac. And that drives my family crazy with envy. I tell them, I am in love with a beautiful, sex-crazed slut, so why can't you just be happy for me? <laughs> and after all that fuss, there's a lot less people at our wedding than you might expect. <laughs> and it could be that love makes you prejudiced, but I always thought that Brit was pretty smart. You know the feeling when you can watch TV together for a whole year and you both never argue over what shows? Seriously, if you knew how much TV we watch every week, then you would call us a happy marriage. And now I have two little babies that smell like Thanksgiving pies. And when they're old enough, I'm gonna tell my little girls that everybody looks a little crazy if you're looking close enough. And if you can't look that close, then you don't really love them. And all the while, all the while your life goes around, and 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 life goes around, and life is always going around. And if you keep waiting for somebody perfect, you'll never find love. Because it's how much you love them is what makes them perfect.
And maybe I'm the retarded one because I keep waking up expecting my happiness to run out when maybe I should just enjoy it. Being this crazy, in love, happy simply cannot be so easy. And I can't expect such total happiness to last the rest of my life. And there's got to be something wrong with me if I love my wife so much. But for right now, I'm driving home with my new family from the hospital with my beautiful wife sitting next to me and our twin baby girl safe in the back seat. But I'm still worried how happiness this great can't last forever when Brittany screams, slug bug, and her fist clobbers my shoulder so hard I almost crashes into a whole Dairy Queen. That's romance. This is Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, Chuck Palahniuk from the Writers on a New England Stage series. His novels are often about or narrated by people cast out by society. They're mostly male, usually self-destructive and violent, and often addicted or slouching toward recovery. His transgressive fiction has touched a nerve among readers, inspiring a rabid following that calls itself the cult. Several hands went up in the audience at the music hall when asked if it was their first author event. Polinick has experienced his share of darkness and violence as well, and we'll hear about that. The new book, Damned, is set in hell, where Madison, the plucky, pudgy 13-year-old daughter of narcissistic Hollywood celebrities, lands after overdosing on marijuana. The fiery furnace of Damned is a sluggish bureaucracy, swirling in bodily fluids and menaced by ravenous demons. The damned make internet pornography or work as operators at a call center programmed to disturb people around the world just as they sit down to dinner. I sat down with Chuck to ask him about damned and included questions submitted by the audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I asked him how he came up with his vision of hell. When you tour on, uh, on book tours, big hotels typically have what they call an author's suite. It's a couple rooms usually with a fireplace and a big bookcase, and they put all the visiting authors in that suite. And part of the ritual is you sign and date a book that goes in that big bookcase. And normally when you check into a hotel room, you like to think that that mattress is a virgin, has never been with anyone else. But in the author's suite, you know that mattress has been with Paula Dean. <laughs> it's been with her like six times. And the, the books are dated. So you know that that mattress has been with David Sedaris and Paula Dean and Jane Fonda and Lee Childs, and it goes on and on. And there's this part of me that always starts to scour the room for fingernail clippings and <laughs> Ann Coulter hairs. <laughs> and when you pull, when you, when I pull back the sheets in that mattress pad, it's always, you have to wonder, is Nora Roberts the bedwetter? <laughs> it's like the Shroud of Turin multiplied. And it really is that, that disconnect between all their noble thoughts, all their highest endeavors that are lining the wall, and all of their corporeal left-behind scabs <laughs> that are in the carpet, that disconnect between the body and the mind that I find so fascinating. And so hell is all these left-behind little fingernail clippings and scabs and blackheads. <laughs> I'm not trying to be funny here. 
So you get an idea, perhaps, of this vision of hell in Damned, if you haven't read the book yet. Mounds of dandruff that people have to wade through. Rivers of vomit and seas of excrement. And scabs, of course. When you write this stuff, do you sort of think, this is really going to gross people out, or is this just all inside your head? Oh, come on. These are people that watched Anthony Bourdain eating whatever. <laughs> In a way, I always thought that, uh, that Dante's Inferno was just travel writing. <laughs> no, it is. It's, you know, Anthony Bourdain goes to hell and eats the insides out of a snake. I mean, that's hell. That's why we watch it. Um, Charles Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle, travel writing. Gulliver's Travels, travel writing. And so in a way, with Damned, I just wanted to take my shot at travel writing. Oh. Well... But we do see Dante's vision of hell and Jonathan Swift especially crawling over these giant bodies in this book. But also Judy Bloom. The book is, has a kind of preamble structure like Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. That Judy Bloom story really typifies a real classic form of story. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is about a young woman who is compelled to move into the suburbs and completely adapt to a new environment without understanding why. Very much like Shawshank Redemption is a man thrust into prison, not really understanding why, just having to make the best of it. And that's very much what Damned is, a young woman waking up in hell. And so I wanted to use a, a, a really classically established form, you know, and in this case, Judy Bloom's form. And she is a 13-year-old girl. She's overweight. She's both sort of repelled and fascinated by sex. I'm just wondering how you, uh, somebody who was associated with very muscular male writing in a way, adopted this voice of a 13-year-old and how you maintained it. You know, once you kind of create the, uh, the wardrobe of phrases that a character has, you have a great credibility and you have a great speed in reusing that wardrobe because most of us have a set group of phrases that, that we use. What I love is, is studying what people say when the conversation falls to zero. When, where I grew up, people would always say, it must be seven minutes after the hour. Because I was raised Catholic, and it was believed that Christ died at seven minutes after the hour. So all conversations would fall to silence at seven minutes after the hour. And uh, Jewish people say, you know, when that conversation fails, they say, ah, another Jewish baby's been born. But these transitional sort of ritual phrases that we have for bridging moments, you establish all of these kind of utilitarian phrases for a character, and it creates a character with a continuity and a credibility that, that you don't get if you're constantly reinventing the character's speech. Um, yeah, so it was very easy to come up with the, the kind of phrases that she uses consistently. And, and hell's kind of almost a relief for her. She's very relieved she doesn't have to take the SATs, for example. But it's not all that different. In fact, it may be even better for her because she makes friends. She makes this kind of breakfast club of, of friends. Right. And I always thought that, that the breakfast club was a really clever way of retelling Sartre's No Exit. <laughs> because it's... They're in eternal detention. Exactly, with people you wouldn't normally socially interact with, and you're driving each other crazy, and you have no other, no other choice. So it's existentialism with better music. <laughs> we have the jock, we have the cheerleader type, Babette. 
we have the kind of rebel and also the nerd, Leonard, who's a great sort of vehicle for teaching her about the history of hell. Uh, give us a little bit of the history of hell in the book Damned. Hell. I think it's fascinating. There's a lot of sibling rivalry in the book that, that Madison really resents the fact that her celebrity parents are constantly adopting these kind of refugee children, usually just in time to exploit this adoption for a movie release that they're involved with or a, a company takeover. And I love the fact that, to my understanding, one of the common ideas of where Satan came from, Lucifer, was that Lucifer really was this wonderful, beautiful child of God and that heaven was this wonderful, happy place until God kind of cheated. God kind of went off and started a new franchise somewhere else and suddenly his old family was expected to accept and adopt this new family. And like for so many of us who found ourselves as children, you know, being introduced to our new brothers and sisters under the Christmas tree and expected to interact these very intimate family rituals with total strangers, at, you know, being expected to accept this whole new set of siblings at a moment's notice. Uh, I could see why Satan would be pissed off. <laughs> and so hell, it consists of all those people that God kind of left behind and resented being left behind. And it consists of a lot of gods of previous cultures mm. that were discarded and kind of cast into exile. Along with Liberace, well. <laughs> Robert Maplethorpe, Frank Sinatra, and Ava Gardner. There's a lot of people alluded to, but who are not actually confirmed there. So. Right, she says they're there. But, yeah. but you're kind of an equal opportunity hell guy, huh? You know, they can all land there. Dante did it, I can do it. <laughs> and, the, and the catalog of sins that they land there for are pretty interesting. You know, wearing white after Labor Day. Um, brown shoes with a, a blue purse? Yeah, brown. Yeah. <laughs> Honking your horn more than 500 times in your lifetime. Swearing as much as I did in that last story. I swear, exactly, straight there. It's not any more ridiculous than going to hell for killing an ass, I suppose. Or wearing mixed fiber clothing? <laughs> <laughs> you just mentioned something about her ultra-liberal parents who think that they have an insurance policy against anything bad happening to them if they uh, support biodiesel and wind power and that kind of thing. But Maddie truly, truly, truly misses them. She does, and that was the basis for writing the book. Is, uh, this is how the, the hideous comedy tragedy of everything is in 2008, I was promoting the release of the movie Choke, which is a comedy based on this son trying to save his mother who's dying in the hospital. And at the same time, my mother was diagnosed with large cell lung cancer, stage four. And so I, I spent the whole year going from gala, white tie movie premiere to chemotherapy lounge hospital deathbed, to gala premiere, to chemo lounge, to gala premiere, to eventually funeral. And in the last few months of my mother's life, I was writing this book because I knew that my father, who was killed in 99, he was gone, and that very soon that she was going to be gone. And I knew that the grief was going to be overwhelming, but that it wasn't going to be any fun to write a book about a 49-year-old man who missed both of his dead parents. But if I could invert the situation and make it about a dead child, a spunky dead child, a spunky fat dead child, 
who missed and mourned her parents, but they were still alive on earth, then I could make it a funny book and I could have fun writing it and I could still express my grief and hopefully people would have a lot more fun reading it. And at the same time, the morning she died and my sister and I were there with her dead body, we'd left the Catholic Church 30 years ago. We had no idea, what do you do? We had no narrative left for what do you do with a dead body? And we were really cast adrift. And that's something that we've lost by you know, walking away from religion. We've lost the, the ritual of what do you do at this moment. So in a way, writing this book was a way to mourn, but also a way to kind of point out the fact that we lose a lot when we lose religion. What did you do? Called the paramedics. I thought, oh, I should take her Percodan and Vicodin while it's still there. <laughs> and you know what they do first? Even before they take her out, they take the narcotics. It's state law. I don't know what I cried over more. <laughs> See, it's better when it's funny. Well, the, the first impression that we get of Maddie's mother is she's grieving, and she's a very wealthy woman with houses all over the world, and she is locking Maddie's former rooms via her computer, you know, just hitting Control-L on the room in Milan in Venice or wherever. This kind of detached grief, but also she, she's a ghostly presence, you know? Maddie's very much alive. She's very much with us. And I wonder if your mother was a ghostly presence in this story in any way for you. She was just in, you know, both my parents were just in, you know, the, sh the shock of losing them both. You know, my father died at 59. My mother died at 69. And your father died... Tragically, he right. was murdered. He was murdered in 99. Oh, the summer that the Fight Club movie came out, he was shot and killed by a kind of a deranged man. And Fight Club culminates with the lead character being shot and killed. And then the movie Choke came out about the, the mother dying fairly young. And my mother died very similarly. And my sister came to me and said, <laughs> you've put a curse on our family. Don't you dare have a movie go into production where a sister dies. That's what I'm writing right now. <laughs> and any one of you, I'll find you and write a movie about you. Did you, looking back at Fight Club after your father was murdered, did you think about the book differently? No, I thought about the book as this fantastic uniting thing because my father read it and he didn't take it personally. He thought about his father mm. who, <laughs> to go back and back, my father's father, my father didn't really have a father because when he was four, his father went berserk and killed his wife and killed a couple of their kids and then killed himself while my father hid during this whole tragedy. Oh my God. So in a way, when my father read Fight Club, it was a chance for him to open up and talk to me about having missed his own father. So, you know, the book gave us a little more than we would have had otherwise. Did you have anyone in mind, you know, couple-wise, flying around the world, adopting children? Not going to burn that bridge. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Okay, leads to my next question from Michelle. Did you meet Brad Pitt? <laughs> That's the best question you could pull out of that stack. <laughs> I thought it really had to be asked. 
Yes, I did. And he was very, it was very funny because uh, it turns out two of my best friends in Portland went to school with him. My friend Sarah was his prom date. And my friend Greg was his high school, his uh, college freshman roommate. And so when I first met him, I said, you know, Sarah Hart says hello. And he just kind of completely kind of stopped and became a person. And he said, how is she? I said, she's got a little baby. It was very pleasant after that. And so they're kind of both in touch now. All right, here's a more meaningful question. Are you aware of the lives you've saved? <laughs> Only the animal lives I've saved. <laughs> I, uh, I donate a lot to, uh, to no-kill animal shelters. The only souvenir that I've kept from the Fight Club movie shoot was the yin-yang table that was made for Edward Norton's apartment. It cost $16 in the IKEA catalog. 20th Century Fox could not use the actual table, so they hired an artist to make a duplicate. It cost $3,000. <laughs> I teased David Fincher so much that he shipped it to me. I've had it in my office for 10 years, and right now that table is being auctioned by the Pixie Project, pixieproject.com, and all the proceeds from the sale of that table will save animals with uh, big health problems and find them good homes. So the pixieproject.com. Look, you love little animals and you take care of your mother when she's done. I mean, you're a tender guy, right? Why, why characters with so much bravado and aggression? Don't force me to swear more. <laughs> um, I think it's much more appealing when a character is doing something kind of dreadful, but for a really noble reason. And most of my books are about people doing these kind of scams to get their emotional needs met. They're, they're pretending to be dying so they can be in a support group among dying people who will hug them and give them the cathartic moment of, of weeping and make them present to, to how much of life they actually have. Or they're pretending to choke in restaurants so that strangers will embrace them and they can have these cathartic breakdowns and be resuscitated, be brought back to life, resurrected in front of a whole community of strangers. So my characters really do very despicable things, but for very noble emotional reasons. And I think that's just a really, in, in an age when you can't really say I love you, because it's kind of hackneyed, it's just a new way of saying I love you, and I want you to love me. <laughs> what is it with you in recovery groups anyway? I mean, in Fight Club and Choke, um, I understand that you used to bring people back and forth to recovery groups as a job. As a, I was a volunteer at a hospice, and because I couldn't do anything else, I was a, kind of a, they called it an escort, which sounds sexy. <laughs> but you're taking dying people to support groups in church basements and then sitting there to take them back. And, uh, and what I loved about support groups is when I was little and I went to church, Everybody got very dressed up, and you sat there, and you completely controlled your behavior, and you presented this self that existed nowhere else in the world except for at St. Patrick's, sitting in that pew, bored out of your mind, but proving that you could sit there. <laughs> and what I loved about support groups and 12-step groups was that they were a place in the world where you could go and present your absolute worst self. You would show up completely strung out or completely in breakdown, and you would confess your worst self. Okay, this week, I was stupid. I was violent. I was profane. 
I was horrible. And people would hear your worst self, your community of peers, and they would forgive you, and they would accept you back into community, which is what I always thought communion in church was. And so in a way, I think that support groups, 12-step groups, serve the function that church used to serve, where once a week it was your, your escape valve, your safety valve, where you could go and say, this is how bad I am, and people would still love you. Considering you wrote Fight Club, which more than touched on bringing down the corporations, what do you think of Occupy Wall Street? Asked John. I think that we forget how fantastically isolated people are in this culture if they don't have a job. And when you get out of college, you go from this fantastic cradle of structure and peers. You all live together, and your lives are supported together, and you're all involved in mutual passions. And you will never have it so good in your life. You will never be so connected. And then you get out of college and you find yourself completely cut adrift Mm -hmm. with no structure and no friends and no advisors and nothing. You are never as alone and frightened as you are at that point in your life. And the same when you're retired. You kind of go back into a similar isolation. So I'm not surprised that it's these two groups who are coming together and finding community and I think that's a big function of it, is just to be together, just not to be alone in the world right now, that there's a comfort, a kind of church-like thing that happens. And I'm a big advocate of the, uh, the sociologist, uh, Victor Turner. He might be an anthropologist. But he talks about limnoid events, like Burning Man, mm-hmm. that where people come together in kind of an equalized social strat- status, that just showing up makes you equal with everyone else. And there's a spirit of communitas, kind of shared joy. And that the purpose of these limnoid events is, number one, they allowed people to come together, and the most extreme of the people will kind of self-select to get hurt or get arrested and be removed from the culture. Mm-hmm. And then another smaller group will get a kind of very small release, and they'll go back to their normal lives. But then a portion of these people who come together at limnoid events will discover that they're really gifted leaders and that this is a fantastic ex- social experiment. This is a really great little laboratory. And that the, some little experiments from this laboratory can be developed into the institutions of our future. And that this kind of subset of people at limnoid events will rise up and become this new generation of leaders. So that's what I think of Occupy. she is so sad about or she's lamenting I guess um, the unchanging fates of her literary heroes she says every single time you get to the end and Jane Eyre still marries old gross out burn victim Mr. Rochester and you know she can't change her own fate Jane Eyre's not going to turn into a ninja hero so but you can write your own fate i guess and i wonder if that's for you the power of writing that you're sort of changing the ending you know that's what i've always thought writing was for and i think that's why we tell stories you know this is how jejun i am that's the only fancy word i know <laughs> you don't often get to say that no you don't thank you <laughs> And you won't have to cut it out, either. We'll have one word left. Tell your editor it's not dirty. Um, 
But I, I think that storytelling is a digestive function. And in the same way that you eat something and you, you chew it, you digest it, a cow chews its cud, cow brings it back up, chews its cud. When things happen to us that are too good or too bad to readily assimilate into our identity, we have to digest it by telling it as a story, and we tell it as a story. And we went to Cabeza de Lobo, and we went to Cabeza de Lobo, and we went to Cabeza de Lobo, and we had to tell that story over and over until it is completely digested as a culture and as individuals. So we will see the Titanic story told over and over until it's completely gone. And you notice that you know, when you sleep, you dream. I think you're still digesting life. And that you don't tell the same stories now that you used to tell. Not because they're not great stories. Those are still great stories that make people laugh. But because, in a way, you've digested the unresolved nature of them and you've assimilated those aspects as part of your identity. So all I do when I write is kind of digest my life. Do you have any advice for any of us to prepare for eternity? Wear good shoes. Don't swear. <laughs> Chuck Polinick, thank you so much.